Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks so much for joining us on Toronto Today. It's three days before Christmas, two days before Christmas Eve, and we've got a show for you. We talk about some of, well, the messaging and the uh, the height of, well, not relaxing about this. Okay, You can't be panicked, but you can't be relaxed. you got to find your middle ground with where we're at with COVID, with Omicron, um, because I don't know that the battle is won yet. I'm quite sure it hasn't been. We get there with Dr. Monica Gandhi. We have Dr. Stefan Burrell on the show. Uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. It's not all doctors, uh, but pretty close. And Global News' Anthony Robart uh, will join us as well. We've got an elongated chat for him, a special uh, digital bonus uh, with us talking about uh, parenting as well. Um, boy, a couple stories that... Uh, I don't ever want to relive, and I know Anthony had one that was uh, quite well documented in the fall of 2019, but all for and happily, you'll enjoy our chat there. It's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I'm very pleased to have our next guest on, though. Um, this is a rock star. People say to me, Greg, make it make sense. And I'm like, I can't, but let's put on smart people who can, who aren't going to scare you. Also, there's no need for unnecessary scaring. You want data. You want reality. She brings it. Dr. Monica Gandhi gets up early from California for us. It's great to have you on, infectious disease specialist. Um, I think most people, uh, let's talk about you and your experience four weeks ago when we find out about Omicron to be named a couple days later. And it's not easy. It's a big burden to bear. A lot of coverage of it skewed one way in terms of sort of fear and uh, and uh, paranoia might be a strong word. How did you see the coverage playing out to com- compared to where it is now? Right. So I totally agree that even that first day, there was so much fear, stock markets crashed and so much panic. Um, variants are actually expected to emerge, um, especially in the face of not getting global vaccine equity right. And this is what happened. We don't know where it arose. And the immediacy of it was that it had mutations across its spike protein, 32 and 50 across the whole virus. But we didn't know. Um, we knew for sure that T cells, uh, what are, which is another arm of our immune system, was going to be able to cover this variant because we've we've known that from the beginning how in breadth our T cell responses are. Now we have data on that that the vaccines will cover this variant in terms of severe disease. So we could have comforted ourselves at the beginning with that. And then the second is we needed to know if it was more transmissible or if it was more virulent. At this point, no doubt more transmissible. Already 73% of the new uh, infections here in the US. But um, in terms of being more virulent, the reassuring data both from laboratory studies and what we've seen around the world is that it really is causing fewer hospitalizations and deaths than the Delta variant did, maybe even uh, 50% lower or more. Why do you think some were hesitant in the initial days um, to trust the South African data? Because when I looked at it, I I put doctors on from South Africa, journalists from down there, Dr. Gandhi, and they make two points. They'd say it's a younger population, different climate as well as we're in the depths of winter here in uh, in the Northeast in Canada. But but I would make the point, well, they're not very well vaccinated. And we saw this play out with Delta all through the summer in your country, all across uh, Canada. The more vaccinated regions were able to really ward off um, bad Delta outbreaks. So I, I think we looked at those things and thought, maybe this is, this is you know, the, the, it counteracts each other, younger population, but we're a ton more vaccinated. Yes, that's exactly right. That um, they were the South Africa was twenty five percent vaccinated when Omicron 
um, was detected there. And they actually did very nice age stratified analyses. So it's not like everyone is young. Uh, the median age 28, um, which is the same median age when Delta hit India, which was a very, very terrible uh, infection. And it was very obvious what happened in India. Within days, oxygen was running out. People, there were a lot of deaths and suffering. It was so obvious within days. Here now there's been four weeks and South Africa has put out very, very good data that not just uh, age stratified, meaning what's going on with 50 year olds, 60 year olds, 70 year olds, 80 year olds, um, and still showing much less uh, virulent disease, much more mild disease across age groups. And like you said, they're a little frustrated because they keep on saying, you know, why would you not believe large databases of true outbreaks in South Africa as opposed to a model from Imperial College that is based on 24 people? I'm glad you brought that up about modeling. We've got our own Ontario science table here, and, and I might not make it to, well, I don't know that they're having Christmas dinners, but even if they were, I may not be invited. Um, <laughs> but, and and I, I get that's not an easy job. What I find, and listen, sometimes it's um, it's like a game of broken telephone. They're creating models of worst case scenarios. I got it. I understand why that is. That lets governments adapt to policy. And in some cases, it's fit like a glove. But especially in a post-vaccinated world and in, in, you know, much like in California, we are heavily, heavily vaccinated uh, to the point of about 90 percent two doses. And and that'll increase with boosters. But I worry that that people think it's a prediction, not a worst case scenario. And sometimes that's that's mislabeled by by us in the media. And we and we got to raise our hands and say we got to do a better job of it. No doubt about it. But it's. It's dangerous. Yeah. It's a, it's got that. Ele- I don't want to call people dangerous, but it's got that element of danger and fear if you misinterpret it. Yeah, I mean, it really created so much fear that Imperial College, um, 24 hospitalized patients, put out a prediction or a model that predicted a lot of hospitalizations um, from Omicron, which, again, we're not seeing in the U.K., um, even though the cases are really astronomical. So, uh, and that's because it's highly vaccinated. And also there's a lot of natural immunity and immunity works. And yet South Africa kept saying, hello, over here, you know, largest number of cases of this particular variant. Um, we do have older people here. Um, and these are actual, it's not, we're not telling you about a model. We're showing you actual data. And really it seems more mild, not only among the vaccinated, um, which we would expect, but among the unvaccinated, maybe because they have natural immunity, or it could be also that there's a question of this being less virulent in in vivo, meaning it two studies now, one from uh, Ravi Gupta's lab at the University of College London and one at the University of Hong Kong, showing that the virus doesn't seem to infect lung cells like alpha, uh, delta, wild type variants do. So lots of replication of the upper respiratory tract, which is making it look um, very much like cold symptoms but not in the lower respiratory tract. And that really would go along with unvaccinated people also having a mild course of it, even older unvaccinated people um, in South Africa. They also vaccinated their older people first, like I did. So we don't know if it's less virulent or if it's more immunity in the population or both, but the combination of those two factors is making Omicron more mild. 
Dr. Monica Gandhi, kind enough to join us Toronto today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I liken this to um, sort of like a boxing match where it's, you know, we had that race in the spring, really, didn't we, with vaccines versus versus variants. And and in some areas, because of of great campaigns and, and great uptake, um, the vaccines won. In other areas, you know, we can look at some of the southern states. There were you know, very tough situations with hospitals overflowing in Mississippi and Louisiana. I remember those images and those TV stories. That said, it's a it's a strange one, right? Because I think we're ahead in this fight, but but getting cocky too early in something like a boxing match, we could get smacked pretty badly. We're all hopeful. We're anticipatory. I'm sure that we'd agree there's been more good news than bad. But to me, we're about like three or four rounds into a 12 round fight. Do I have that analogy at all right? I think that's a very good analogy, but I think that there's no question that highly vaccinated places like Canada, like highly vaccinated states in the U.S., um, we just could, it, it's, like a, it's like a complete inverse relationship. The more highly vaccinated with the Delta surge, the lower the hospitalizations. There is no reason to believe that would change now. In fact, it, it's, it is going to be even more decoupled, we call it, right? Cases from hospitalizations are uncoupled in places of high vaccination. And the reason that's important is Singapore is a country that decided that um, during the Delta surge, they had a huge number of cases, many asymptomatic, uh, question if that's the case, um, or mildly symptomatic and just very low hospitalizations because they had a trust and the whole country was like that. So they decided in September, we're going to go only on hospitalizations to make the, the the public panic. We're not telling the public cases. We'll, of course, track cases in health departments, but the public will be informed of hospitalizations and if they go up and down so they can prepare accordingly. And they've done well. And that strategy has allowed for so much calming um, of the population. Uh, uh, It's not up and down with cases. There's no panic. It's like highly vaccinated. We trust the vaccines. And this is how we're doing our policy now. You could do that in Canada. Cases. I want to go there because I know we talked about it early in the fall and, um, you know, I'm sure there were things that uh, that we all could admit. Well, I, I was a little late to this. This wasn't one of them. I looked at it and I thought, you know, when, when we obsessed about cases in the summer of 2020, way, way, way before vaccines, that made sense because then we've got a better sense of of uh, of covid Definitely. in our in our communities. But I started thinking about, you know, news networks and news stories that cases up, cases down. And I thought, that's not telling as much of a story here in a, in a post-vaccinated universe. I feel like, and, and this isn't to pat you on the back or me on the back, but now I feel like a lot of other people have caught on. I feel like it's finally hitting, if you will, the mainstream media. You know, you appear in the mainstream media. I am in the mainstream media. But it's hitting, it's, hitting, it's hitting everybody right in the face. And I feel it's only some stragglers right now that are pointing at cases and going, look, disaster on the horizon. I just, I, I think that's... That's very much yesterday's news. It feels like it to me. Yes. I mean, you're so right that if we go up and down with case counts, we will say disaster. And instead, if we look calmly at how low hospitalizations are in highly vaccinated regions, we can be really calming as politicians and as media and as scientists. And that's what Singapore decided to do for their public, not even tell them the number of cases because health departments track that but not the public. And that's what we do for influenza surveillance. We know um, CDC, for example, in the U.S. has a very active tracking system for influenza 
cases. We know this as physicians and health departments, but the, the, the public is not told about cases. They're told if hospitalizations tick up more than usual, they will, um, there will be restrictions on the population and antivirals will go into pharmacies. So if we go to that system now as COVID goes from epidemic, pandemic to endemic, that will be much more comforting and cause much less panic in the population. Dr. Monica Gandhi, our guest on uh, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I know I've only got a couple minutes left, but um, schools and kids, you have been um, an advocate, so passionate for it. So many people that uh, I've found through you sort of linked through this, uh, you know, good and and bad social media world have been the same. And the message seems to seems to be now that the vast majority of parents are saying for coming up in, in January, February, to politicians and 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 unions and board members, you keep the schools open practically no matter what, because we know what this is. We know what this is, and we sure know now what it isn't. And we have to reframe cases. We have to reframe, you know, guidelines for what an outbreak is. And and it because guess what, Omicron's going to be in every school. It's going to be in every yes. school three weeks from now, and we we can't have them all closed. We cannot. We cannot. So, I mean, if we did again what Singapore does, the cases are not cases or cause of fear. If they're mild or asymptomatic in young people who are not going to get sick, they are um, will have children stay home when they're ill. But otherwise, it becomes like a cold virus, like a coronavirus, because children are so much less at risk and their learning and their mental health is so important at this stage. Many parents are now understand risk stratification. They're not worried about their children. They're worried about their older parents and they want to get them boosted, but but they're not worried about their children. They get that. And so I think if we prioritize schools, Omicron already is closing schools in the U.S., only in blue areas. Again, this is a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will make parents very unhappy. And I hate saying, you know, it's not I think you've remained strongly um, apolitical and I think it's 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 great. But at the same time, you know, with a midterm election coming, you know that there's sort of drumbeats from a lot of parents who who may have felt this way about the Republican Party or felt this way about Donald Trump. But they are telling those blue states and those Democrat uh, Democrats in Congress or Democratic governors, you open the schools, you you do this yeah. because we've seen our kids learning loss and quality of life and 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 fitness levels and levels of depression they've they're all different than kids that were let out to play six seven eight months ago they are they are there are parents who are saying i'm a one issue voter now yeah so i think democrats um should should pay heed to their voters thank you very much for the time what what a year i mean you uh you must be i know i know you i know you you may be less active on twitter i feel like you're that band that we don't want to retire like you're that athlete we yell <laughs> one more one more in year. January, I know I'm going can down. Handle, we can't I'm handle downgrade. a 22 like 21, but you know we <laughs> we, we don't want you I playing that last gig Twitter. just it's yet. Too, it's too crazy of a world. <laughs> <laughs> I, but your advocacy is really strong, and the people that have come to me and said thank you for having her on the radio, thank you for pointing me towards her account because you mentioned all the fear that was stoked about four weeks ago. Uh, you've you know you've poured a lot of water on that with data and reason and, and pragmatism, and I thank you for it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. Our next guest on, he's an infectious diseases uh, doctor and epidemiologist uh, with John Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins University as well, uh, Dr. Stefan Burrell. It's great to have you on, uh, Dr. Burrell. I really appreciate you making the time. You, you, your information and your messaging has been really important to me, and I've tried to amplify it. I, I think you're saying a lot of the right things right now that we all need to hear. 
Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. A hundred percent. So I, I read this from uh, Derek Thompson in The Atlantic, and I want to run a, fr- a couple phrases by you. And you tell me if you agree. Omicron is so weird that I don't think any one stat should be interpreted glibly and conclusively. But at some point, the sheer breadth of, quote, lower severity, shorter hospitalization has to add up to something. Is that fair? Have we had more good news than bad news in the last three and a half weeks, knowing what we knew when when it first sort of landed kind of in our in our in our um, in our headspace? Sure. Well, I, I think that the, the point that Derek makes is an important one, is that actually throughout the pandemic, I, I don't know that we should have ever really relied on a single statistic uh, to guide our responses in general. And I think that is especially apparent to folks now sort of in the post-vaccination era. But I think that has been the case throughout, that we needed kind of a comprehensive set of indicators and really a plan just Mm. so that the public can sort of see, like, what is the plan? What are we aiming for? What are the goals? What are the objectives in very specific ways? And what are the indicators that go along with that? And I think um, that that has been missing for folks. So we really like every day focused on case counts and, and the reproductive rate. And we've, you know, and, and I think that sort of singular focus has made it very difficult for folks. And especially now, post-vaccines, as we come to understand, and I think you'll hear from Dr. Gandhi, who's mm-hmm. long been a colleague and, 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 and a hero in infectious diseases, it will, will say is that, you know, in the post-vaccine era, case counts are not as relevant as the sort of overall, like, utilization of healthcare resources, as morbidity, as mortality, um, but I think that was the case before as well. Dr. Stefan Burrell joining us, uh, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Where we are, in, where I am in, in Toronto and where most of our listeners are, or in New York City, Boston, let's take the colder eastern seaboard cities in North America. I don't think there's a thing we can do outside of everybody hiding at home that is going to reduce case numbers over, say, the next two or three weeks. Do you think there is? I mean, sure, there's you can mitigate some of that exponential gain no matter what. But this is just too transmissible. Cases, this, cases are going to go up practically no matter what we do, at least for next 14, 21 days. Sure. Yeah. And just for, for clarification, so my clinical practice and my public health practice is, is in Toronto as well, although I'm on faculty at Johns Hopkins. So I know, I know Toronto very well. I've trained there. I, I work there day to day. But so just to say, I think there is a lot that we can do. Um, like, for example, we've just seen our our first shelter outbreak um, in in, a, in quite a while in Toronto. Um, so it's it's like it's it's in these very sort of congregate facilities that there's still a lot that we can do to be providing people the resources they need to not go to work when they're not feeling well, um, to have the space to isolate if they need to. So I actually think that like in wealthier areas, which is what's interesting about Omicron is for now, we're seeing it kind of explosive in in, in, in wealthier areas of the city, which is happened also in January to March 2020, when it was more sort of travel related, folks coming back from Switzerland or abroad and bringing COVID back with them. And so we're seeing that now. And I think the big question is going to be is, does it move as it did before into lower income areas where I think it's much more about structural issues and working conditions, etc. And I think if we can prevent that and provide those folks the resources, then I think we're going to do very well. And, and if we don't, then I, I think we're going to find ourselves for with a very tough few months ahead. Um, it's, it's one of those things as well, where we've just seen over and over again, um, you know, there've been lessons that, that we need to learn about what lockdowns are and what they aren't. And I, I have bristled so much. I've tried to count to 10 and stay calm, but bristled so much with people saying, well, I feel like it's March, 2020 again, or I feel like this. 
and you tweeted this in March of this year, I should point out, but when we were all in for a really, really tough time, when we were, most of us were just starting to get vaccinated. We'd vaccinated the most vulnerable, but we were all waiting patiently for a turn. You wrote, lockdowns in theory, stay home, save lives, lockdowns in practice, stay home, save lives, and bring me my pizza in less than 60 minutes or it's free. This is a problem, and, and it's it's remained a problem that it's lockdowns are incredibly inequitable. There's people that haven't lost a penny. They can do their work from home, but there's so many people that are out there. It's like a, a doctor tweeted uh, yesterday, save a life order takeout. Well, that's great, but you're still, you know, you're still asking someone to cook it, someone to keep a restaurant open, someone to deliver it. And I just think that messaging is falling so, so flat right now amongst the general public. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all work out of our own experiences. So in you know March 12, 2020, in Toronto, we set up the first isolation site for people experiencing homelessness um, in Canada and, and, and really across North America. And, and I think the lesson from that, so I, I did, I haven't been on call in a long time, mm-hmm. but I carried a pager and kind of went back on call. And, you know, the calls that we took from discharge planners at emergency rooms all throughout that week were they, folks were not in the shelter system, but they did not have space to isolate. Again, this is March, 2020. Yeah. They didn't have space to isolate in their homes. Could we admit them in while they were under investigation? As, as you may remember, it was taking 10 days, two weeks to get results back, even for folks. And back then. And and so, you know, and the answer was no, like we we did not provide those folks isolation. We could only admit folks that were already in the shelter system. And all of those folks went back into their homes, into their busy households and, and, and infected likely everybody in that household if they had COVID. And so I think early on, it was apparent to me that like lockdowns are, they're tough for me to kind of grapple with because folks were not provided the resources that they needed in lower income areas to to, to be able to prevent onward transmission. So they themselves might have had mild symptoms, but they live in these multi-generational households. And it's it was tragic. It was tragic. It played out very quickly in data, but we also saw it. We saw who mm-hmm. was admitted, who we saw who was getting sick. And so I think we're 18 months later now. And we still, I think, amazingly are talking about lockdowns, but are not providing people some very basic things that they need to prevent, you know, infections. And 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 the last thing I'll say on that is that like nobody wants COVID. Nobody wanted COVID pre-vaccine. Nobody wants COVID post-vaccine. We have to make it easy for folks to avoid it. And for rich folks in Rosedale, it's not hard. They stay home, they order everything. But for folks on the margins working at Amazon, delivering food, like we we need to do more and we have it. And I think it's it, it's actually it's shameful. It's it is. It is exactly that. What have you made of the of the rush for testing? I understand the rush for boosters because that provides you um, that added layer of protection. Um, but the, the the rush for testing and we've seen it. It's not just in Toronto, as you know, every major American cities had lineups around the block, often in cold weather in the northeast where where some of the numbers are spiking a little bit and where there's probably less natural immunity, to be honest, than de- acquired immunity than down south in, you know, Dallas, Texas or Miami, Florida. What have you have we just sort of lost a little bit of the plot with the incredible Russian demand for testing? Or is it understandable, given it's the one time maybe we'll see a vulnerable relative indoors, um, whereas the other eight months of the year we've chosen outdoor settings? Yeah, I have a tough time understanding like probably like 90 percent of the testing that we're doing or maybe 95 percent of sort of the non-clinical testing that we're doing. And I think these go back to criteria that were developed by the WHO in like the late 60s. And just for clarification, I'm a public health physician, not an infectious disease physician, but mm-hmm. but nonetheless. So we study these what are like screening criteria. And, I, and I'll say that like we, we, we're not following some very basic elements around like why we test folks, 
what it is that we do in, in response to those tests. So for example, for folks in Rosedale, it is true, like they can, you know, they'll get their test result. They're not feeling well, even mild symptoms, and then they'll stay home as a result of it. But folks on the margins, if they're really sick, you know, we're not giving them any option to respond to the test results. So I think that is like a fundamental element. And indeed, right now, what's interesting about Omicron specifically is because folks are having more mild symptoms, when you see those lineups, you see people on their phones, you see people maybe like remote Zoom calls, like they're not that sick. And I think what you're seeing, what we're seeing is that like when we're testing so many folks that are not that sick, it takes away the testing capacity for folks that are like really sick and really, you know, needed an intervention to avoid infections to everybody in their household. And so I, I do think we need to start getting very specific about what our testing criteria are going to be so that we can really focus on testing and then connect those tests to interventions to prevent onward transmissions. Because those folks, if they have COVID, they already know it. And, 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 or, you know, they already, that's it. They have it. They're well enough. They're not going to get admitted. It's the folks that are sicker that might really benefit from interventions that we're taking away capacity to test for. Dr. Stefan Burrell uh, joining us, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I got about 45 seconds. I, I don't think schools are going to close um, in Ontario. I'm not asking you to make a political call one way or the other, but I think if we can reframe cases and reframe the benchmark and, and utilize tests to stay, it's a huge, huge win. I, I just I don't think there's the political capital to be gained, and I know there's not the appetite amongst parents. Yeah, I mean, I think we, as a fundamental element in pandemic responses, schools should be the last to close and the first to open. And that has to be a guiding philosophy. They need to be the last to close, first open. Remote education also does not work for folks who don't work remotely. The very same folks that were at risk who can't just stay home and work and take care of their kids, those folks are like left out of that equation. Mm -hmm. We have to do better. Loved having you on. Thank you very much uh, for being so blunt and, uh, and and articulate about what we're facing right now. And, and I hope you have a great Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks again for the time. Thanks for having me. I love, I love Let It Snow. I like when the cop's singing it in Die Hard when he's buying the fat cop, when he's buying all the donuts, but he doesn't know all the words, Gordon. He's like, dum-de-dum, delightful. He doesn't know. Who do does not, that? How do you not know the words to this? How do you not? How do you not? Um, by the way, I'm hearing, like, again, I thank goodness, like, I might be crazy, but on some things I'm not because I hear from parents and I get this text, uh, Greg, I listen to the show all the time. Last night we had a half full hockey practice. He says, why do you think that is? It's not fear of COVID. It's fear of being a close contact and ruining Christmas. You got it. This is all about our strategy and how we're framing cases. No one wants to, he writes, no one wants to be a close contact and have to cancel Christmas. The same thing happened the last week in schools to a lesser degree. Got it. Exactly. Listen, we have a long-term care visit. Um, uh, I'm going at least on Sunday to see my father-in-law. And Saturday, I think my wife will go uh, with her mom. Now, there's only two people allowed to go at times. We want to find a way to take our two kids. But that's what the 10 rapid tests they brought home uh, is for. There's a lot of complications with it. A ton, no less. Uh, I want to bring on somebody who's been such a be brilliant, strong advocate all year for long-term care and fixing it and 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 noting it needed to be fixed for the last 15 years, each and every one pre-COVID. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, professor at Ontario Tech University. How are we doing? Hey, <laughs> my friend. I'm glad I'm on your last show. I heard that. That made me happy. Yeah. How are you I, doing? I'm trying not to get into trouble before 9.01 oh. a.m. I... <laughs> 
which is a hard thing for both of us. That's okay. <laughs> it is. When I lay that out, that is like, that's concerning. This thing, look, this thing is everywhere. And and whether yeah. there's debate about the uh, lack of severity for vaccinated people, whether it's not yeah. as bad as, as we thought, no one doubts. We just had Dr. Monica Gandhi on. It's as transmissible, if not more than predicted the day we heard about yeah. it. And every single person I know that's going to see somebody in long-term care or going to yeah. see someone important, a, a relative that's not, is worried about that positive test, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think they should be increasingly worried given the fact that, you know, this this government's quote-unquote enhanced measures for long-term care that Dr. Moore announced at his press conference last week are, are laughable. Um, and you know it's laughable when homes are going above and beyond what the government is mandating because it's nowhere near enough. Like there is no circuit breaker for long-term care. Of all the sectors that was hit the hardest, we're doing the bare minimum yet again. And, and I'm sitting here waiting, like many people, frankly, terrified to see what's going to happen, primarily in terms of, you know, the staffing crisis. Because, you know, I know this sector has been rocked with understaffing and, and wild staffing shortages for well before the pandemic, but was increasingly exacerbated during the pandemic where we lost thousands of workers in the first two waves, when, understandably with the terrible pay and the dangerous working conditions they were in and how they were effectively left on their own mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, the first three waves. Um, and now we're just, you know, we're sitting here waiting to see what's going to happen because we know that only 32% of the workers have their boosters. So what happens when these workers all start getting sick and they have to stay home and isolate because I pray the two doses will keep them from hospitalization. Yeah. But the main issue is what happens when they all have to stay home, which is the threat that we're facing imminently. There is no plan for what to do in that situation. No plan. There's no staffing surging plan. There is nothing in the way of hauling, you know what, to get to these homes right now, send mobile booster clinics to these homes to not only, because keep in mind, only 86% of residents have the booster. So we need to get that the remaining 14% because that is a life or death issue for those, for those seniors and those persons with disabilities. If they get this without their booster, they need that booster. Well, then we have, yeah, the remaining majority of workers without a booster. So let me say this, and I think this is patently obvious. And again, you know, yeah. I, I think it's important for parents to have the choice to vaccinate kids. It, it, of course, it, that was great. But we I don't want to say we've pushed the resources in the wrong direction. But Dr. Stamatopoulos, I mean, honestly, I think that's great. If, if you feel that vaccinating your healthy seven year old makes you a more confident household, a confident kid, confident parent, I'm all for it. So, some of that is about how we feel. Feel, not necessarily, you know, the data on the ground. Feelings are real. Yeah. But the idea that we've gone, I think we've gone to the end of the earth to allow vaccination options for parents for kids. And we haven't gone to the end of the, uh, of the and where's more carnage going to happen? Where's more damage going to happen? Where's more death? Where's more destruction going to happen? You know, you and I are blunt about this stuff. It's in long term care. It's not in a grade two class. It's not. Well, the data would definitely support that, right? So, yes. of course, I, I'm. we're all obviously wanting to protect kids. There's no question about it. But yes. where we see the vast majority of Canadian deaths from COVID, it's, it's not only in long-term care residents and retirement home residents, but all those over the age of 70. We know this, right? There is a serious age consideration to be had with COVID um, and, you know, the increased mortality. So why is it that, again, we have this inequitable approach where they didn't think to actually deal with 
the long-term care and other congregate care, because it's not just long-term care, it's, it's other congregate care, vulnerable populations in these very dangerous facilities, because like it or not, they are dangerous. We've done nothing yeah. to really correct for them and fix them. And the fact, the fact that, and I look at this data on the Ontario website, it makes me sick every day because I've been keeping track of how quickly the cases have been, you know, uh, increasing the long-term care outbreaks over the past two weeks when the Omicron discussion really started to amp up. And we more than doubled the, the long-term care outbreaks in the last week alone. But then I see how many outbreaks, how many long-term care homes has ha- have had a resolved outbreak? 507 of the 626. So nearly all of them, like what sign, what, what greater sign of failure do you need that four waves in, we can't figure out how to stop outbreaks from ripping through these facilities. And we know how to do it. Things like, well, I don't know, getting boosters prioritized to not only the residents, but the staff who care for them and the essential caregivers, who I remind everyone still have until February 21st to get two doses. The government didn't think that that was wise to mandate it effective immediately, but gave them another, you know, it is a dangerous window, like it or not. Yeah. And then on top of it, they're only testing staff and, and essential caregivers. The as of last week, this was their enhanced measure, which is laughable. Two times a week. How are you going to catch it two times a week? Some homes, thankfully, are doing it every day, but that's only if they had procured enough rapid tests. So I'm hearing from homes that don't have enough rapid tests, and they're trying to get family members or staff to find them themselves. Like, in what situation is this okay? Like, it is such a patchwork, inequitable BS form of response to the hardest hit sector. Some days it just makes you want to curse on live radio. And you almost, well, I, yeah, I'm all, I, but I, I refrain. Right, it's my last I, show. Like, you, do you want it to be my last show of 2021 <laughs> or my last show ever? Like, there's we we we're splitting hairs here. Please. Right? <laughs> now, now, can I? You know, someone listening may say uh, you're pretty invested in this, damn it, and so am I with my family. Mm-hmm. Can someone make the case with all these outbreaks? Can someone make the case? You, you won't like it. Can someone make sure. the case? We should suspend visits as of right now. No, only because we know what happened in the first three waves when they did suspend visits. And, and I literally am just writing about this for a paper because okay. I'm doing long-term care research. So the point was we went through all these wildly paternalistic draconian measures to shut down these facilities, particularly in the first nine months in Ontario, either shorter or less in different provinces, but Ontario was pretty bad, nine months, where we effectively locked them out and only provided virtual visits and outdoor visits. You tell me in those first two, nine months, did it stop? Outbreaks? No, because we knew all along it was from the improper and negligent practices in the homes, not providing proper PPE, like to this day, and 95s are still not mandated in long-term care, only when you're working with a confirmed positive or suspected positive case. Give me a break. And in this context, where we even Public Health Ontario came out last week mm. and put out a report saying we need N95s right now in the context of Omicron, even if they're not fit tested, because that is a lot of the you know, problem, I think, with a lot of places not wanting to mandate them because then they have to fit test them. But at this point, Omicron is so transmissible. They're saying, forget it. You don't even need to fit test it. Just get Just the get it. Stop using these yeah. surgical masks and these cloth masks. It's not going to cut it. And yet we still don't yeah. have a mandate for getting these better PPE. And forget about that. What about air filtration? I still have so many families that are like, we haven't seen a HEPA in sight. The government rushed to get HEPAs in schools. Why haven't they done that in long-term care? Where's the air filtration? Where, where, where's the quality of air and yeah. the improvements in that aspect? I mean, we've literally dropped the ball. Mm. 
in all areas. But the locking out visitors does not keep the virus out. If right. anything, they prevent that. They prevent more negligence because and, families whistleblow. And I'll say this. I, I'm, I'm so tight for time, but a lot of the visitors come. I know my mother-in-law goes because she needs to make sure crap's getting done. And that's 100%. why she's there every day. It's 100%. not it's not it's not to place joy in her heart because it's rough. And sometimes you need a couple yeah, days is. off. But if yeah. no one else is going, you got to make sure that patients and residents are bathed and they're clean and yeah. they get and they get in their bed and they're not sleeping in a wheelchair. You have to do 100%. all because all that, happens that happens that all the time. It still. does. No question. Um, I got to leave it there. Keep doing what you're doing. I, I, I know. Listen, you and I don't have to be uh, universally popular with 100 percent of the people. But we got to say what we say. You and I are like that. I agree. Keep doing what you're doing, friend. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos joining us. Our last show of 2021 uh, in this iteration. Anthony Robart anchors Global News Morning. He'd have me on in the spring to talk about, I don't know, sporty stuff like the Leafs going on to the second round. And and then we talked about other stuff when that didn't happen. So he joins me now. You know, I, I'd, I'd watched you a long time and I came to a chorus and I think I first reached out to you when you... um. You know, and, and maybe, you know, you know, these were simpler times when, uh, you the, you know, the, the worst thing that had ever happened to you, I suppose, in your life was losing your son at the Maple Leafs game. And I reached, I'm oh, not trying, but I reached, goodness. you know, simpler times when, uh, you know, when that would happen. And I reached out to you and I'm like, what a, what a compelling, frightening, um, you know, happy ending story that was, right? Two, that's about two years sure, ago right. now, two years and a couple months. Yeah, it was October and the Leafs were playing the Habs and it was, look, it was every parent's nightmare. For those who have heard the story, forgive me, but uh, we went to the game. The game was great and we were leaving. I, we go to the washroom and you can imagine everybody leaving, right? It, just thousands, of a sea of people. I go to the washroom. He's right behind me. I just, I won't leave his side. And, you know, not to be too graphic, but I'm standing at the urinal, a lot of people there, my son's maybe a few feet behind. (laughs) And, you know, do what I have to do. I turn around, he's gone. I'm like, what do you mean he's gone? Like, how is this even possible? And the the moment, even just reliving the story is like that moment of panic because you have that, that sense of, oh, my you you can't even put into words i I run out of the washroom and now by this point like everybody's trying so thousands of people and uh, i'm screaming his name looking and he had a leaf's jersey on and everyone has a leaf's jersey on so that's impossible i grab a security guard now by this point a bunch of other people are coming to help me out and we're just running back and forth and by this point just a, a panic and I don't know how much time elapsed, but certainly enough. And all of a sudden, I, I just happened to look down at my phone. And I didn't hear it ring, but I looked down at my phone and I see a number on there. I pick it up and I said, hello. And they said, uh, are you Kieran's dad? I'm like, are you, are you Kieran's dad? And, and so, so th- those words, right? You don't know if this is a nefarious or ominous way of saying that. Or like, or, are you in a Liam Neeson movie right now? That's what exactly. you're worried about. That's your, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or is this, uh, you know, the, the, the best news you could hear? And I, I said, yes. And uh, so I, I have your son, which doesn't really help. Once again, I have your son doesn't help. So, and I'm at gate 10. So as soon as I hear that, I realize, okay, or whatever gate it was. So I go out there. My son's bawling. Oh, no. He had left the building looking for me. And 
And oh. long story short, and I said, what on earth happened? He actually saw somebody who uh, had the same jacket I did, same shoes or look like. He yeah. followed him out. And, I, and he just followed him out and he ended up leaving the ACC. So at this point, you have no idea what could have happened. And the thing is, and this is one of those almost uh, you know, lessons that we learned as parents very young to teach our kids our phone number. And we have them recite our phone number on a regular basis. And for that reason, he was able to tell that woman because he, but he was crying. So she saw, can I help you? And um, so he was able to recite the phone number and thank goodness, because mm-hmm. who, like, who knows? Who knows? I, I mean, I just, cause the game's over. So it's not like there can be a PA go over that. Like it's just a bit of a mass exodus. Right. So it's not like in the middle of the game, they could actually say something over the PA in a commercial break. They can't do that by that point. No, no. So, and, and look, you have to assume that would he have stuck around? Would have a security guard would have found? I don't know. I mean, you, know, you have to assume and hope that um, it would have ended in a positive way, no matter what. But at the same time, you don't I mean thousands of people there. You don't know. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, when we were kids, I'm sure I'm sure it was like this for you. I mean, our parents barely knew where we were half the time, <laughs> you know, and I don't think they bothered them, but, uh, you know, we're on our, on our kids. I got two little ones and, uh, well, not so little anymore, 11 and 10 and, and you're on them all the time. So maybe to a fault, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things. It was really some kind of story and it all, it, uh, yeah, it, it grabbed all of us and made us all uh, maybe a little, even more conscientious. Um, so basically, you, uh, you know, this is not meant to be a, this is your life of the last three years that calms <laughs> down the energy subsides. Your wife, yes. your wife isn't, isn't plotting your eventual uh, murder. And then well, that was the biggest worry. I had. Right. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'll tell you quick. I ran, my wife was somewhere and I ran out of gas. We only had the one kid at the time. And in Michigan, I was coming literally from Bed Bath and Beyond. I run out of gas mm-hmm. and I'm probably three, you know, maybe it's only 400, 500 meters away uh, from a gas station. But that's tricky because I've got, a, I'm not calling her. There's no way I'm calling her and admitting this. So I've got a toddler. <laughs> I'm walking down the side of a busy four lane road in Michigan at 430 in the afternoon on a Friday. So everybody's on the road and, I, and you got to, you got to walk to a gas station. You have to buy the gas can there because I didn't have one. You know, I plan ahead. And then you've got to, the weird thing is I had to get a stranger to hold my toddler's hand while I filled up the gas because I didn't want any of it splashing on him. So it's not like he can stand. I don't trust him to stand, you know, stand by those weird logs that they sell at 7-Eleven outside. Oh, no. Right. Don't, go stand by the firewood. I need a stranger to trust and be like to five feet away from mm-hmm. my 19 my month old. And I go. Just hang on to him. I'm gonna fill up. You are like so. Whatever father you, whatever you know, oh, worst yeah. father of the year you thought you were. I'm sitting there and it feels ten times well, worse because then I got to walk down the highway with a gas can that might be splashing and a kid in one hand, and then I get home and it's like, oh, how was your day? And it's like, yeah, I'm yeah. not telling you, you know. No, this is just. An, I'm, I wonder how many stories there are of fathers <laughs> and maybe mothers, but probably most likely more fathers who just, you know, there's so many things you just don't want to say. You don't want to, oh, this didn't happen. Everything's great. Everything's, you know, no problem at all. Can I tell a real quick story? When I was a kid, I went to Expo 86 on this note and uh, I was what? Oh my gosh. 10, maybe 11 years old. And uh, and I don't know if you went to Expo 86, but I mean, just- I wanted to. Vancouver, big deal. Yeah, yeah. Massive amount of people. I mean, tens of thousands of people everywhere you look, right? And I was with my 
family, my mother and my, my uh, brother and sister, we were walking and somehow I got separated. And, and for whatever reason, and this is maybe the generation, same age as my son, basically. And for whatever reason, I didn't panic. I was like, oh, okay, I get some time. And literally, I was gone, separated from my family for probably three hours. And you think of this, like, and, and I didn't think to go to a security guard or anything. I was like, well, I'll just walk around. And then three hours later, out of uh, a miracle, who knows what it was, I literally just bumped into my family. And they're like, oh, where were you? And I'm like, where was I? You know, and so obviously they didn't send out the search party for me, but it was, uh, it was, but that was it. It was just one of those things. And, and you just find that moment, right? Oh well, goodness. I'm not trying to, again, not trying to trump you, but the, I lose my kid at a Florida water park uh, about five years ago in 2016. And laugh, goes, it's not funny though. No, but he goes down one of those lazy rivers way too far uh-huh. ahead of me. And if, if someone's ahead of you in the lazy river, you can't catch up to them because you'd be elbowing like, couples and teenagers out of the way. So he's way, way past me and you can get off at a few different stops. So we don't know where Mm -hmm. he is. We're sure he hasn't left the park. He's like eight or nine. But then when you see him uh, standing with a towel and a bathing suit and he's standing next to a Florida state trooper, like there's a cop there just on the scene. It's not a great feeling to pick your kid back up from a Florida (laughs) cop. (laughs) No, 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 no. no. And you're Uh, like, I'm a tourist. I'm a visitor in your country. I used to live here, but you know, don't arrest me. Uh, for child endangerment. Um, Should we tell these stories? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's people, the viewers like, what is going it's on? Very, it's very confessional. It's very confessional. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned it at the top, uh, what a year. And I'm sure you, because you work mm-hmm. the same hours as I do, and, and a lot of our audience does, and your audience, you, you ride a lot of highs and lows. Like I remember telling people on the show when like news would break and, and you would have broken into it as well. When, when there's a vaccine right in development mm-hmm. and, and when it, it's available and then when kids can get it and then when things are going well and, but you, you want to give good news a lot of the time because you can't a lot of the other time. And it's, it takes a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I don't know how it is for you. It just, it, it burns you. It takes a lot out of you to ride that roller coaster. It's an interesting one, right? Because you cover stories. I've covered, I mean, hundreds, thousands of stories over the years. And and there are stories that you cover and there are really impactful stories, really emotional stories, traumatic stories, stories that stay with you. And, you know, particularly the ones with the ongoing coverage. I went to Haiti, for example, and those stories stay with you. But here's the difference. I can go home from those things. And... And and so while many stories have that impact, most stories don't because you have that professional detachment that you can cover the story objectively. This is a story, this is like, this is unlike anything else, obviously, because not only are we covering it all the time, every single day, almost every single moment, but we are living it and you live it. And because you have children you live it through their eyes as well and their experiences with school and hockey and dance class that's canceled and, and the league shut down or whatever it is. And so you deal with that emotion. And then, and then it's an interesting one as well, because, and I try to take a step back, you have, I mean, everywhere you go, and I'm sure it's the same with you. When, when I go to the rink, um, everybody talks about it. This is the conversation on everyone's mind. So it's a 24 hour um it's a 24 hour story in many ways. So it's, it, you're right. It's, you've got to be level. You got to find that um, you have to find that peace. And, and on a personal note, in, in all honesty, 
meditation has really sort of helped me separate the job and just being able to find that balance because otherwise it can just suck you in. And because the story keeps changing, right? There's the good news in a lot of ways, and then there's the bad news, and then it goes up and down, and the information changes, and it comes in fast and furious, and and you have to be able to cross-check it. Not only do you have to take that information as is, but you also have to, in, in due diligence, you know, you have to do that, and you have to be um, responsible and do your own research mm-hmm. and fact-check what is what, what you're being told. And the information changes. I mean, you you heard this before. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you know, take for example when NASI gave its advice with vaccines, and that differed from public health. And then there was the news about AstraZeneca. So things change and things evolve. And I remember, oh my goodness, at the very beginning, I'm not going to name the doctor, yeah. But speaking of of how things change so quickly, out of respect, I'm not going to name this person. But um, uh, they were on our show, and this is in the early days, right? And probably I was two feet away. From them because you're just doing typical interviews. And when I asked about masks, the answer I got was interesting. And I look and I use it as a reference point now. The, the, the answer I got was, well, if it makes you feel comfortable, um, sure. Yeah, I guess you could. And that was the advice at the time. And you look how quickly that changed and how you have to respond to it. Um, and be able to, you know, look, our job as well is to hold public, uh, you know, public officials, government mm-hmm. officials, public health uh, accountable. And so by asking those questions, by asking any question, uh, it, those are important responsibilities that I take seriously. And so that takes work. That takes an ability to, you know, and time. So there's that emotional investment as well that you, that you deal with. And yeah. And I'm sure you've felt this way too. We get pushed back by some of the questions that we ask. By asking mm-hmm. questions, it doesn't mean we take that position. Asking questions means uh, we are challenging and it's sort of the art of the debate. The art of the debate is you take the contrarian position in some cases. If anything, it reaffirms the official position that's coming out or it pokes holes in it. So look, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a ride. It has been that. Uh, that's the voice of uh, Anthony Robot, of course, from Global News Mornings right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. And I don't know that there's a, a paradigm shift in, in what I feel from viewers and listeners, but there sure is. Um, look, there's 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 pure and utter fatigue. There's pure and utter frustration because like, yeah, a year ago, you're you're waiting this out. You're We know we're waiting on vaccines. And then it's just a matter of distribution, procurement, who's going to take it, who isn't. But what I yeah, what I struggle with, to to your point, is 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 we've got health health people say health is everything health is important health is very very important but as you know from guidance what you could say to an 80 year old if you're in public health just doesn't doesn't necessarily apply to an 18 or 19 year old college student and you can't say that i know that you can't but that's why it's important you you put on experts we put on experts who who might make that distinction like you might not mm-hmm. want to you know take Take your grandma to a, a pub when she's seventy-seven and and is and and has some comorbidities. But if you're coming mm-hmm. home from college and you're you want to see one of your friends and you're both vaccinated and you're both, uh, I, that's a big that's a huge difference. And it's hard for public health to make that distinction because we'd be here all day, right? Everybody's different. Everybody's level of risk is different. Everybody's uh, comorbidities are different. Everybody's health are different. And I think we, 
you know, we've realized the pattern of that to prioritize education and and our psychological well-being and our quality of life. And and as you said, putting our kids first is is, is a hard thing to do when there's so damn many of them. And and we've got parents that, that always parent differently. That's a good point. And unfortunately, I think one of the one of the difficult situations is everything is this one size fits all. And it's not, you know, we learned very early on that long-term care homes were the, the most important areas and healthcare settings were the most important areas that we needed to take care of. And it took a long time to get that. And, and I remember doing stories way before this, talking about how ill-prepared these long-term care homes were. And then they were faced with this. And, you know, to transfer to another issue when you're looking at boosters, uh, and you made this point too, now it's open up to 18 plus. Well, what about the priority groups? If we had the priority groups, then you sort of work backwards. Um, you know what the priority groups are, right? We know by this point, if we mm-hmm. don't, then mm-hmm. we're irresponsible. And, and that's, that's, that's a really important distinction that you make. The other thing too, and, and I don't know if there's enough focus on just general health. And, that, and that's a really big part. We, we can do all the things that we need to do, the vaccines, the masks, the distancing, the common sense, the things that we need to do, which is to be safe, to be cautious, to take precautions. But we also need, in my view, uh, it's an opportunity to empower ourselves with a knowledge of health. And what what makes people healthier, mm. um, you know, and, and connected to that, mental health is a big one, right? If we live in this fear, that has a direct link to mental health or to to our immune system as well. So the the lower our immune system, anyone's immune system, the more vulnerable we are to get anything, and especially COVID. So this is an opportunity that we can that we can take that you know perhaps you know you know not perhaps but I, I say. Uh, government officials and public health officials uh, should speak uh, mm. more open about to you know you do all the right things, but you you make people out there exercise, nutrition, all the things that we can do to make ourselves a healthier society. Yeah, all that all that matters so much. Uh, Anthony Robarts joining us from, uh, of course, uh, Global News and Morning Show, uh, Global News Morning. Um, last thing, it, it 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 speaks to that to some extent because I think we'll all. We'll look back and we we want to be proud of how we cover that story. But you've seen you've seen the media get look. Yeah, I always laughed. I used to laugh, you, as you can imagine, on sports radio when people say, "Well, the media want this. The media the media want the Leafs to lose." I'm like, "No, nah, it'd be pretty cool to talk about a Stanley Cup final game on a morning uh-huh. show or an afternoon drive show." And the ratings, like the Jays' ratings, when when I was at uh, at the other place, were on steroids in 15 and 16. So no, <laughs> we we do like good news and good story. We don't just oh, want the small water skiing at the end of the at the end of the newscast like no. Ron Burgundy. But I, I would look and I say the relationship be- between the media and uh, and the public, it's a weird one, right? Because it's important. It's important to to have trust. And I think you and I have documented some of the areas where where you can hear one thing or it's a game of broken telephone and and you know people think that everybody's in the same boat, rowing the same oars. And and there's so many people doing such good work that I want to amplify and and you probably would have want to put on your broadcast. And then there's another that so you say, nah, that's that's not for our viewers. It's it's a very it's a really tricky game to hurdle over. Oh my goodness. And Brad, you probably have a lot more freedom in talk radio than I do. 
Um, that being said, yeah, there are a multitude of voices that you could put on, but you also have to be responsible and realize, okay, well, you know, that comes with baggage and that, you know, there are many different issues and many different voices, but I, I like, I like having the conversation and the debate and being able to ask questions and being able to, and, and look, and the best is you know, we haven't had a great opportunity of doing this to have two public health officials with differing points of view mm-hmm. or, you know, infectious disease with different points of view. And, and they exist, of course, and have them talk about it because it teaches us all, I would think, to be able to do it. But, yeah, you're right. When it comes to the relationship with the media and the public, it's um, look, it's it, it can be tenuous. And uh, people I take my job very seriously. and as as I should, uh, there's a huge responsibility that comes with it. Many things are impacted by the things we report. And so those, we can't take that responsibility lightly. I always think media, news, uh, especially local news, but, mm-hmm. but news in general, we are the biggest cheerleader for our community. But at the same time, we, are, we should be the biggest critic of our community. And ultimately that makes us all better. And yeah, I certainly want this uh, story to end. I want the Stanley cup in the city. <laughs> I don't want to keep this going. My goodness. It's just, I mean, mm-hmm. how much more, how much more could we take? Right. But it, you know, when you cover the stories, you have to have the balance. I like dessert with my meal as well. So mm-hmm. you, you can't just have COVID coverage uh, all the time because you still you have to keep your viewers. You have to keep your listeners. So it's one of those things you can't uh, turn people off entirely. But it's it's an interesting balance. I'm conscious of that. I uh, I you know I was conscious of that with with CNN and the four Trump years. I'm like, you know, I'm no expert, but you might <laughs> you can't you can't have a show as bashing him left and right and then show every single one of his rallies live. We're we're there's something lost in the disconnect. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, I know. It's. It, yeah, it's an interesting. It's so interesting. Uh, what a pleasure having you on. And uh, and again, I'm I'm such a fan of uh, of the show and and what you guys do on the show. And thanks for making time for uh, our audience. And let's do this more in uh, in 2022. I uh, I wish you the best and, and have a great Christmas. Relax and uh, count to 20 a few times with your family. <laughs> Greg, honestly, it's a pleasure. It's, it's great to uh, to talk to you and actually do this. And I know we've talked about this for a while. Yeah, um, yeah I'm a big fan of yours, as you know. And uh, honestly, wish you and your family a Merry Christmas. And uh, let's do it again soon. Get some, you know, t- take a break as well. Yeah, yeah. Naps, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll put the naps aside and actually sleep more than five hours in a row. I think that's that's a priority over the next uh, week and a half. It was great having you on our show. You too, Greg. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that's that for Toronto today. I'm going to take some time off. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday and a Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. I will see you in the new year in 2021. Till then, you can follow me on Twitter at Greg Brady To, but I I'm gonna I'm gonna dial it down a little bit. Just just take a breath or two once in a while. I think it's needed. Uh, have yourself a wonderful holiday with those that you love, and do what you can to find joy, find gatherings, do it safely, do all that stuff. Thank you so much for being a part of our lives and our show here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Alan Carter will be in this chair tomorrow. Thanks for listening.